0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, it is said that um, C.S. Lewis was trying to write uh, a fantasy series. And um, he couldn't figure it out. And then all of a sudden, he got an image in his mind. And it was an image of a, uh, a fawn actually carrying an umbrella. A fawn uh, is a uh, half-human, half-goat mythological figure. And then this light post in this snowy wood. And it said that from that image that he got, he immediately thought, Uh, then the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe just started to flow out from him, and he started to write it. And then more, Chronicles of Narnia, the series, started to flow out from him. And so from this one image, um, all these other stories, all this book, everything emanated from it. And it's not a bad um, parallel to the Christian life because we have our one image that everything else flows from, and it's quite simply the cross of Jesus Christ. You could say the empty tomb if you wanted to say that, but when we say the cross, we can say the cross because we know that the cross is not the end. It's the story of Christ and what he's done. And last week, and then over these weeks in January, we've been talking about how do we read the Bible, how do we understand it. And um, last week, there were like 11 of us here right after New Year's, and we talked about how we read the Bible. And one of the things that, uh, that we said last week is we understand the Bible in light of the greater story of this image of God and what He has done for us. The Bible's not mythology. It's not just these Aesop's fables with these little proverbial nuggets of wisdom that are thrown out, or not even just inspiring stories. It's the one story of God and what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. One of the best ways to sum it up, I'll hit this quickly and then we'll move on. Uh, Titus chapter three talks about this. Let me share this with you. I shared this Christmas Eve, actually. Um, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, see why it's a great Christmas text? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, God the Father sent Jesus Christ our Savior. And then it says, he saved us. Not because we're great. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, Or my favorite literal translation of mercy is pity because he looked and saw how helpless we were in our sin and he sent Jesus Christ to go to the cross, die and rise from the grave. That's the story of the Bible, but it gets even better than that. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of uh, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, something supernatural that has happened, whom he poured out on us, I love this, richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by being in a right standing with God, by his grace, we might become heirs. There is something for us. We are not outside of the family. We're in the family. The blessings and promises of God are given to us according to the hope of eternal life. So to sum up what he just said, no matter how good or bad we might think we are, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay for our sin. He went to the grave. He rose triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. And we are now heirs in his family. We're not alienated from him for all who have put their trust in God. And we have a hope of eternal life. That is not something that anybody in this world can offer. That's nothing that is far better than anything we could get here. That is the gospel message that God saves sinners. And so um, some examples of this, and I've given some of these uh, periodically. The story of Abraham and Isaac that can sound kind of barbaric, where God says, take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, the one that you love, and take him and sacrifice him. We don't just see that as a, what is happening here? Why is God, he gave him Isaac, and then he says, go sacrifice him. We see that as if you remember the story, God, uh, Abraham takes Isaac up and he's going to sacrifice him to demonstrate his love of God. And then of course, I, Abraham's about to go through it. And then God says, no, 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 stop. He stops. It was never his intent to do it. He wanted to see, if he wanted, it was a test of Abraham's devotion. And what's he really trying to say? When we start reading that, it's really hard to apply like in my own life, unless you start to understand this is actually a picture of what God did by giving his own son for us. He went through with it. He demonstrated his love in that way. It's an Old Testament picture of what we see in Christ. Or the other big obvious example is the Exodus. You think about the Israelites that were um, enslaved by the Egyptians. And um, if you remember what happened, God sent Moses. He ...over. Then the plague started coming, and then what did they do? They had to take blood from a lamb, and they had to put it over their doorpost, and the angel of death would go, and he would pass over, right? That's where they get the idea of Passover. The angel would pass over the people that were covered by the blood of the lamb. And what happened? The deliverer God sent Moses freed them from the enemy that they couldn't get, out, get away from and brought them into the promised land. And it's an Old Testament picture of the gospel, which is, um, before we're in Christ, we are enslaved and in bondage to our sin, yet we are covered by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. We trust in him. And so what is the promise and the assurance? That we are heirs of eternal life, that we have a land that is promised to us someday, that our eternity is sure with him. And so when we read the Bible, we don't just read it for good tips. We read it in light of that entire gospel message. And so um, today I wanna hit two things The first one may sound like there's an easy answer, and there's not. First thing is, why the Bible? Why the Bible? Why why do we actually read the Bible? And the second one is, I I sent out an all-church email. Thank you for your responses. And um, I got a bunch, and this was the number one question that I got. Which Bible? Which Bible? We'll talk about that. Um, today, you'll have to pardon me. I'm gonna be uh, doing a little bit of teaching. I hope this doesn't just come across as a bunch of data and some big wall of words just kind of coming at you. Um, we'll make it real practical here in just a little bit. I also know there's a few little tricky areas I'm gonna be stepping in. My goal is not to offend. My goal is to equip. Uh, and it's hard because this is not gonna be an exhaustive teaching on these different topics uh, or we'd be here for weeks and so you don't want that. So um, let's, let's knock some of these out. So um, the first thing is why the Bible? Why the Bible? Why do we stand up here? Why do we open the worship service? Why do Betty read scripture in the worship service? Is it just because we're Christians? And I don't know, I guess you just should. Um, And the answer is actually a little more complex than you might think. And I wanna make sure everybody hears this and everybody knows this. The short answer of why we read the Bible is because it's the word of God. What does that mean? If you, if you try to talk to somebody who's, who's not like grown up in church or something like that, and you just talk about the word, the word, the word, sometimes there's, there's a disconnect and confusion. Um, <clears throat> the word of God is almost synonymous with the words of God. Most theologians would make a distinction. I, I, I don't make one as, as sharply as some do. These are God's words intended for us. And I want to show you that from the Old Testament um, what Jesus that Jesus was the Word, and then we'll see also from the New Testament. All right, so hang with me here just a minute, because if the Bible actually contains the Word of God, we ought to take it very seriously. That's why this matters. All right, so let me just um, real quick, Old Testament. Do you know the most common opening of the prophetic books in the Old Testament? Prophets are not just um, predictors of things that are going to happen. They are they are actually going and speaking for God. And so um, the, the books open up and it says, the word of the Lord came to, and then it has a person's name, and then it has what God told them. I'll give you a couple. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Elijah. The Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The Word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah. The Word of the Lord came to Micah. The Word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. The Word of the Lord came to Haggai. The Word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The Word of the Lord came to Joel. And on and on and on. We see throughout the Old Testament, we see the Word of God came through these people. And then what you see is people either listen to it with the greatest of reverence because it's the Words of God or they reject it to their peril. All throughout the Old Testament, the word of God. Let me um, share another thing here. In Nehemiah chapter eight, I don't know if I've done this here or not. If, if so, you just get to do it again. Nehemiah chapter eight, they They've been in, the Israelites have been in captivity and they're gathering back together now and they find some of these the, the scrolls, the books. And so it's probably the first five books of the Bible and he's gonna stand up and he's going to read them to everybody. Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So he's up here, and then you got the Israelites out there. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This is essentially their Bible in their time. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seven month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. He read from it from early morning until midday while well, everybody stood there and listened. in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. I have to say, this is not as big a thing here. When I was in Texas, and I was at this Baptist church, at least at this church, there were some people that wouldn't even stay for the final hymn if it was noon. And it was like, we're doing the final hymn, people are coming forward, and it's like, nope, we're beating the Methodist to lunch, and everybody just wanted to bolt and get out of there. And so literally, like, the pastor would be up there, and people would do this, and like, look at their watch. It's the most deflating thing. Please don't do that if you have to do it. Or wait till I look down and then look at your watch or something. Um, but, that, but literally, like, the, what they used to do, they had such reverence for this and for the gathering of God's people from early morning until midday. They just hung out and people read. Um, and then the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. You can start to see some things that parallel how we sort of do church today. Stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose And beside him stood, and it's a bunch of people, I can't pronounce their names, on his left hand, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. As he opened it, all the people stood. Listen to their response. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. The people answered, amen, amen, lifting their hands. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also, and then he lists some other people, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. All God's people gathered, somebody stood up and read from the scriptures, basically the Bible they had at the time, the Word of God at the time, and then people stood around to help make sure everybody understood what God wanted them to hear, explain what this meant. That's how they revered the Word of God in the Old Testament. I'm gonna try something. As I don't remember if I've done this here or not, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> In just a moment, I'm going to take a step forward, and I'm going to open up my Bible. And all I'm going to do is read a passage from it. But I want us to emulate what they did in that passage. And just when I open the Bible, would you stand to your feet? All right? And picture being in ancient Israel, and this being a common practice, John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Please be seated. How'd that feel? Yeah. You feel like it does, it sort of feels different. It's interesting because we, we tend to just think like, and especially, I mean, listen to me, I'm, I'm the guy who gets up here and speaks, that, that all the words we say are the only ways that we communicate. And the reality is that speaks volumes, doesn't it? To all of a sudden someone walks up and just, op- you don't have to get up again. I just do this the whole time and mess with you. Somebody opens it up and everybody stands in reverence to it. Think about this. If you're a child in ancient Israel, And you're in that gathering, and you're just sitting there, and maybe you're young, you don't know exactly what's happening, and all of a sudden, they just open, Ezra walks out, he opens the thing, and he starts to read. And as soon as he opens it, all the adults that know what they're doing, stand up, and you go, "Oh, oh, we're standing up now. And you would stand up, and you would grow up, and you would go, I don't understand half of what that guy just said, but whatever he's saying must be really, really important. That's how they revered the word of God in the Old Testament. Why did they take it like that? Because they believed that what he was speaking was exactly what God wanted them to know. And then you hear the passage I actually read to you just to kind of keep moving on to what Jesus was. It talks about Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. That's in John 1. And it calls Jesus the word, the L-O-G-O-S, the logos, which is the word that means word. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is communicating exactly what God wants to communicate. It's a, there's a whole study on this word. At a most basic level, Jesus is communicating. He is representing God. He is God on earth. And if you want to know about God, look at Jesus. We study the story and the life of Jesus so we can know the mind and the heart and the will of God. It is God speaking through a person. Just like we stood up and that communicated, God sending his son Jesus is speaking to us in the medium that he uses through his son. And then in the New Testament, it has words like this. In Hebrews, it says, "'The word of God is living and active, "'sharper than any two-edged sword, "'piercing to the division of soul and spirit "'of joints and marrow, "'discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart.'" Um, the Bible refers to itself as the word. You see the Old Testament, you see this is the word of God. Jesus is the word. When we call the Bible the word of God, we are saying that God is trying to communicate clearly with us. So he wrote it down. I don't know how much clearer he could be. It's really a statement of love, isn't it? That we actually have this, that he wants us to know this. And this is, this is so much better. I picture like like an archery contest, how some people live their lives where um, if, if we don't know and we just go, I'm just sort of, I'm spiritual. I'm just sort of figuring life out. I feel like it's an archery contest where you line up and then you go, I have no idea where the target is. And so you just go, uh, and just sort of shoot it off into the distance and hope that at some point it lands and happens to hit a target somewhere. God says, there's the target. There's what you need to know. This is how you can know me. This is what I require of you. That's what the Bible is. He's given us his, his Word so that we can know what He requires of us. We don't have to wait and wonder, and then just sit and go, "I hope God's not angry with me." I hope that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to pay for my sin. We can know through His Word. Now, the next question is, which Bible? This is what uh, this is what came up. This was the biggest question that I. Uh, that I got. We have um, last night. Actually, we had oh, we had an awesome, awesome wedding in here, and it was these two young people in our church. And um, he is from South Africa, and we literally had dinner with them. And he's like, "Boy, I hope my my family's going to get to come." This was months ago, and I was like, "Oh, I'm sure South Africa I'm sure is fine." And then like the next day, they're like, "Omicron from South Africa," and we're like, "Oh man." And so they didn't get to come. And so we had to stream, we streamed to a bunch of them and they did the coolest thing. They recorded scripture readings in the lang- in Afrikaans, what they speak. Uh, and we had a couple of them that they showed during the worship service. So someone read Genesis chapter two in English and then read it in Afrikaans and we they'd sent some stuff over and it was awesome. And I have to tell you, I was watching it in Afrikaans. I do not know the language at all. So I'm literally turning and watching it and I'm looking down, Leo's his name. I'm looking at Leo like, are they done? Because I have no idea. I don't even know where they are in the text. And then he would go like that. And I go, OK, that, that was good. But there was something like, I couldn't understand the words, but there was something powerful and profound about how it had been translated to all these different, the Bible's been translated to all these different languages, and here they are speaking it. Still carried weight, even though I didn't know exactly what they were saying. But should we all learn Afrikaans and read the Bible? Should they all learn English and read the Bible in English? Should we all go learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic so we have to go read it in its original language? Is that required in order to understand the Bible? Which Bible did God intend for us to have in which language? There's some streams of Christianity that have more books in their Bible than we do. Should we have those or should we not? There's um, so many different translations as well, it can just become Overwhelming. So I wanna take a few minutes and try to answer a few of these questions. And and I'll show you right at the end of the service, we've uh, we've got something. I'll share that with you here in just a second. Let me try and help you with which Bible. And the only motive here is I want you to know the word of God and have a Bible that helps you do that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you want one verse in the Bible about the Bible, this is the one that people go to. When you study, it's called Bibliology, the study of the word of God. When you look at it, this is the main one that they come to. Here it is. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me read it again. All scripture is breathed out by God, or um, the King James says, given by inspiration from God, or the NIV says God-breathed, all scripture is God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. If you've ever seen this, we've done this with the kids before, where if you picture a path, the, um, the Bible helps you know, here's the path, teaching you what to do. It teaches you reproof. It teaches you you're off the path. Correction helps you get back on the path and training in righteousness helps you stay on the path. The Bible helps guide us in life to know the mind of God for what we ought to do in our lives. And the words there where it says breathed out by God, it's actually in Greek, it's theos and, enou- it's theonoustos, it's theos and neustos. Theos is God, neustos, or is from pneuma where we get the word Um, spirit or breath or wind. And so when it says God breathed or breathed out by God, or like I said, the King James says, given by inspiration of God. um, One of the ways that we talk about it is it is inspired by God is the essence of that phrase, okay? So you could say all scripture is inspired by God. All All scripture has as its origin, God, That's what the Bible is claiming, which if I wrote a book and I said, every word on this page is breathed out by God and inspired by God, you should either read it completely or you should go, "Mm, that's kind of crazy and you should get rid of it. In my case, you should do the latter. In this case, you should do the former. These are God's words for us. And so the question that we have then is, if all Scripture is breathed out by God, what it's talking about is the original texts that were um, Old Testament is in Hebrew, New Testament is in Greek, and there's some splashes of Aramaic throughout a spoken language of the day. And so which Bible can I get today that is going to get me back closest to those original manuscripts, to the original text, to the ones that God has for, has for us, the ones that are inspired by God, which Bible that I pick today gets me closest to what is Inspired, and um, I'll hit two things quickly. First of all, the shorthand that we use a lot of times is um, is you hear you hear two lies. One is that a bunch of guys got together, went in a sm- well not a smoke filled room. A bunch of priests they didn't go in a smoke filled room. They went in a room and came out and then decreed like this is the Bible. We have decided this is the Bible, and um, that's not what happened. Um, <clears throat> two two pieces of that to hear one is we don't say that people decided what books go in the bible we say theologically god decided and people have recognized what god had already decided that's really important okay people didn't just decide God decided and people recognized. Now, how did they recognize? This is one of the biggest lies, so I wanna be sure you hear this. What you hear all the time is it was a top-down approach that, like I said, they went and some some priests back in the day went in some room and then they came out and they said, these are the books. These make us look bad, so we should get rid of these. Oh, we wanna emphasize the deity of Christ, so let's cut these out, let's add these, let's add some things here. Like they went and they did it in secret and in hiding and it was a top-down approach to where we got the Bible. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not how it happened. It was not top down, it was actually bottom up. In other words, by the time any of those councils got together to decide something or to recognize something, sorry, my own wrong language there, before they got together to recognize this, they already looked out and what they did is say, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. What are the books that Christians are already recognizing as inspired? And so it came in kind of a bottoms-up approach. I'll just direct you to this. F.F. F. Bruce is one of the best scholars on this. Here's what he said that can sum it up. What councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of these communities. So this is not just some councils somewhere met. This is in Christendom. People are meeting, and they're reading the inspired Old Testament. They're reading the letters of Paul. They're clearly taking some and saying, this doesn't jive. They're talking with eyewitnesses and figuring out, we're not going to be presenting this one in our church. And then the councils got together and said, wait a minute, let's look. And all they did was codify what was already the general practice of these communities. Next question is, um, we have Bibles there, and they have 66 books in them. This is probably the biggest question that I got, honestly, back from the, on the emails. Why 66? Why do we have 66 books? And others, um, Coptic Christians, and uh, um, uh, Russian Orthodox, and Greek Orthodox, and Eastern Orthodox, and perhaps most famous, famously, our Catholic brothers and sisters have more books in their Bible. Well, why? And how do we know? You know, someone would say, well, we, we took some out, and we'd say, well, you added some, and you know, you kind of do that thing. Um, let me try and explain this as delicately as I can here. First of all, the 66 books that we have, of all those groups that I just mentioned, there's incredible uniformity on them. Some of these books, um, sometimes called the Apocrypha, add one or two chapters to one Old Testament book. But other than that, the Old Testament of 39 books that we have, we have in common with all those groups. The New Testament is even closer in common with all of those groups. So really the distinction is besides a couple things in the Old Testament, there's something that is sometimes called the Apocrypha that you might've heard of, um, that is written during, most of it during the intertestamental period. Now, let me also say, we have a lot of Catholics here, former Catholics, whatever. Um, sometimes apocrypha is sort of a dig, and that's not how I intend it. Because like, if you say something is apocryphal, it's like, oh, it's basically not true, is what you mean. That Depending on who you talk to, some may think that's sort of a, a dig or a slam. That's not my intent, just to clarify which books we're talking about. We've all got the 66. Some have these other books as well. And so why do we have 66. Well, let me give you my case for why I I read 66 books of the Bible. I'd argue from Jewish history, from Christian history, and then from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jewish history, Christian history, and then the mouth of Jesus himself. Um, Jewish history, the Jews today uh, say that the books in the Old Testament, as we have them, are the word of God, the 39 books of the Old Testament. And Judaism today universally rejects those other books as a part of what we call the canon of Scripture. So Jewish history, um, Christian history, um, when it comes to church councils, I don't find any church-wide councils that met that affirmed anything except the sixty-six. There's some local ones that met and had some other books in there as well, but generally uh, the broad church councils. In fact, many of the church fathers had a sharp distinction between the other Hebrew books, and then all these were written in Greek. Uh, Martin Luther translated the Bible to German. He didn't include this Apocrypha. Um, There's no Apocryphal books quoted specifically in the New Testament, though we have to be careful with that um, because Jesus didn't, or we don't quote every Old Testament book in the New Testament. Um, And so the conclusion in Christian history, this is my summary, is these books are informative history and narrative, but I wouldn't take them as the word of God. And I'll show you one more thing from the lips of Jesus that's a little confusing, but let me try and and explain it. The Hebrew Old Testament to their day started in Genesis and ended, the books were in a different order, they had all the books, they ended in 2 Chronicles. So Genesis to Second Chronicles. And then there were these other books out there as well that some include as part of the scriptures. So Genesis to Second Chronicles. And the, in, in the book of Genesis, the first innocent, so to speak, person that was killed was Cain killed Abel. And at the end of the book of Chronicles, a man named Zechariah was unjustly killed. And so Jesus is speaking. This is in Luke chapter 11. It's also in Matthew 23, 35. And Jesus says, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What Jesus just did is he looked at, they had all these books in the day and they had this unique Hebrew Old Testament canon and he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And so that's why, as a Protestant, when I talk about the 66 books of the Bible, we talk about the Old Testament as Jesus declared it. Then we have about 400 years of silence where there's no inspired works written. And then you have the New Testament. So how should we take these extra books? Um, The Geneva Bible was was one of the major English translations in 1560. And there was a preface to the Apocrypha. And it says... um, it says, these books were not received, quote, by a common consent to be read and expounded publicly in the church. And then it had one other piece that's important here as well. And did not serve, quote, to prove any point of Christian religion, save in so much as they had the consent of the other scriptures called canonical to confirm the same. Here's what that means. What that means is if you're reading these, they said that they would not take just from these scriptures where um, just by themselves, if there was one doctrine taught there and assume it was doctrine. They would would read them, but then they would look and it had to be taught other places throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple examples of content. In 2 Maccabees chapter 12, a man named Judas came upon somebody who had been worshiping idols and had died because of it. 2 Maccabees twelve forty three And after he made a collection of men, he sent off 2,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for sin. He acted entirely, rightly, and honorably, considering about the resurrection. He made atonement for those who had died to be delivered from their sin. So this is giving a sacrifice for the atonement of the dead, which we don't find other places in Scripture. Um, second thing, Tobit 12, 9. It says, almsgiving delivers from death. And it will cleanse every sin. Those who practice almsgiving and righteousness will be filled with life. Almsgiving delivers from death and will cleanse every sin. Now, I do also have to say, we need to be careful because I'm giving you things out of context. And my hope is just to spur you to go and to read and to study. Because if someone came to me and said, did did Jesus really say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not taste the kingdom of heaven? And I'd have to go, hold on, Let, let, let me explain that one. And there's explanation as to why that is. But out of context, yeah, it can sound this way. But I look at these. These are some examples of why um, I take 66 books. But here's what the Geneva Bible says. This is still in the intro. It says, to take these as books proceeding from godly men, they were received to be read for the advancement and furtherance of the knowledge of history and for the instruction of godly manners. In other words, they're saying the thing that I would say to you today too. I'm not not scared of it. Go, Go read it. Go read it and take it in the proper way. You might find personal sort of inspiration from it, but the way I'm phrasing it is to say it might be inspiring, but it's not the inspired word of God. We have 66 books that I would strongly argue are the inspired word of God. So read these things though. Read them as history. Read them as almost commentaries of things that are happening in that time. Do you, do you know that um, we sing songs that actually come from the uh, Apocrypha? It came upon a midnight clear. The guy who wrote it was inspired by some lines in the Apocrypha. Now thank we all our God, we sing, and it comes from Sirach chapter 50. Last question I want to address. Which version? You ever gone on Amazon and just searched for Bibles and it says 42 billion hits? And you just go, uh, I'll just get the first one and just no idea. Or go to like Mardell or something and you walk up to the wall and you think it's going to be an easy task. I'm going to go buy a new Bible. Then you walk up to the wall and your eyes just get huge because you have no idea which one. And I didn't even know there were all these translations. And then there's different colors and there's, these are for women, these are for men, these are for kids, these are for students. These, like, it can just be overwhelming. It can be uh, cause for panic. Let me try and help just briefly today. When they do Bible translations from the Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, there's a spectrum, like a continuum, that they put them on. One is um, readability. And one is accuracy. Can you put that? Okay. So you got this spectrum here. You have sometimes we call it word for word, which is going to be very very accurate, but can be kind of difficult to read. Or you get to the other side, and it's translated more thought for thought, which is easy to read, but can be um, maybe just a tiny step away from what was in the original manuscripts in the original text. And then so what they do, and if you go to a, if you go to like a Mardell or something, you can see they put the translations on. The spectrum somewhere. So the question would be Do you want one that is, where, where do you, do you want one that's pretty easy to read and pretty darn close? Do you want one that's really, really accurate and really hard to read? I'm just going to show you three because I think if I go, here's all 30 translations, then it's going to get overwhelming. Let me give you three. I don't remember which ones first. Will you put it up? Okay, there we go. We went this way first, word for word. Um, I would say one of the most accurate. Um, They use this in seminaries, is the New American Standard Version. Um, It is a little tricky to read, but it is going to be very, very precise and very accurate. And then I think the other side, is that next? Yep, thought for thought. The New Living Translation is a fantastic one that um, does a little bit of interpretive work in their translation, but it's very easy to read. And then, so what we do is we look and we go, okay, so you've got really hard to read, um, easy to read, really accurate, maybe not quite as accurate, and you're going, okay, there's something like right in the middle. And I would argue that the um, English Standard Version, which is what I use, is one of them that I think falls in that middle. Maybe a little bit more towards the New American Standard side, um, but it is, uh, it is a very good, solid translation. Now, let me show you this, because you could look, and you go, oh, I'm not going to get the New Living Translation, as though that's where, like, brand new Christians, like, oh, well, that, like, like, that's where the not very smart people go, and then as you get smarter, you work your way up the spectrum. That's not it, all right? I'll tell you a couple things you can do. I actually, I, I will read multiple translations when I pick up the Bible to read it. You can go to Bible Gateway, just go look, and uh, you can see them online. BibleGateway.com is what I go to, and it has a zillion translations, and I usually... Just take these three and just go through them to see the different ways that something is said. Listen to this. John 3.16 from the NASB, so really precise, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. He gave the only son that he had. The ESV, can you go back to the slide with the three of them? Sorry. Um, The ESV, so that's the NASB, in the middle, instead of saying his only begotten son, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So you can see they're saying the same thing. The NASB adds a word and it's literally translating something. The ESV just combines the two words and says only is close enough to what the author is trying to say. Now the NLT, I don't say, I, I feel bad putting it there because it makes it sound like oh, you shouldn't really get that. I, I really mean this. My wife is one of the best Bible scholars that I know, and she loves the New Living Translation. She does, okay? Let me read you from the NLT. He says, so the other ones say, for God so loved the world, but it's confusing because literally he's not saying God so loved the world, which is how we take it. It's saying, this is how God loved the world, that he gave his son. That's the meaning of it in the original Greek. Listen to the NLT. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. These are great translations. There's more translations that are fantastic. Um, There's good translations. This can be a great thing. Like um, you go to other cultures, they don't have options. You got like the the one thing, maybe it's translated into their language. Here we have tons, but I also get that it can be quite paralyzing. So I'm trying to just narrow it down to about three. But I'm also happy to just chat with people about other things very specifically because you have a translation of the Bible and then you've got, like I said, men's and women's and kids and um, students and you've got ones where you can take notes. You've got ones with wider margins. You've got some that have study notes in them. You've got some that don't have study notes in them and it can seem overwhelming. And so here's one of the things that we have for you today is we have a bunch of Bibles from our pastors over in Fellowship Hall, Not sorry, not, for, not, not as gifts, don't steal them. There are pastor's Bibles. If you steal a Bible from a pastor at church, it's like a triple sin. I can't help you, all right? (laughs) But... We've got them over there. we got like 35 or 40 Bibles. And when you go get coffee and donuts, just go over there and just, you can flip through them all you want. Just don't take them. You can go through and flip through them and you'll see the different translations and grab them, put them up next to each other. Sometimes, you know, you get real practical. This is a good size for me. Some people, um, you know, I, I want a smaller one so it goes in a purse or I can just carry it real easy. Or no, I want a big one that's got all my notes and all my everything in it. But the point of this is quite simply this. God has given us his word that we might know him. And our desire is that you would know him. And sometimes, if you want to do something right, you've got to have the right tool to do it. I have no tools at my house. The joke is, if we have to fix something, I have to run to Home Depot, buy whatever that tool is, and then I will never use it again. One of the first steps in getting a Bible is to get the right tool in your hand. Which translation? Maybe it's some of you, like I grew up reading the NIV. I grew up, when I read the NIV, what I found is I would read, and then I would just start filling in, because I was just in church my whole life. I'd just start filling in, and then I started reading a different translation, and something just kind of came to life for me. That might be you. Do that. Some of you might be looking and going, I've really tried like the, um, you know, the New American Standard type thing, like super, like maybe harder to read and And I realize I can only get through a little bit of scripture. I'd love to read bigger chunks. The New Living Translation can help you get through longer chunks of scripture as well. But we gotta be clear. Wherever you are, this isn't, I said, this isn't like the smart people and the not smart people on the spectrum, anything like that. This is wherever you are, however God has wired you, grab a good translation of the Bible and read it. We have this clarity from God, this uncorrupted message, and he wants it that way. This is actually the reason it's so great that there's so much clarity. Like you ever had a conversation with somebody and then you go, hey, after we get off this call, can you do me a favor? Uh, Can you send an email that just has what we just talked about so we're crystal clear what you and I just decided together? And everybody goes, yes, that will be helpful so we all are clear and we're all on the same page. That's what God has done. Because if you and I were just inventing some fake religion, I I wouldn't want a whole lot of documentation. I'd want to be able to just bend to, oh, there's some new science that my God didn't anticipate, so we need to bend, so let's not write too much about it. And God has said, here you go. From the beginning of time, here is me, here is my word, and I want you to know this. And what I would love for you to hear today is not one hint of guilt coming from me. If you're going, I haven't, I hope you don't hear one hint of guilt. I hope you hear encouragement to spur you on to pick up the scriptures and jump in. Um, Some people, it'll be brand new to you. Um, There's several easy things to do. You can um, jump into the Gospel of John is where like Billy Graham would always recommend. I always, well, he did it first, but I recommend it too. Um, Luke's Gospel, as we're studying Luke, we're gonna jump back to Luke's Gospel. Start reading along with what we're teaching here in the service and you'll start to see it come to life. Um, Over the next several weeks, what we'll do is um, we're gonna have very, very practical ways to go from, I've never read my Bible, I don't know where to start, to I've been reading my Bible for years to see how to move up. But the big one today is just take a minute and analyze, do I have the right tool? Do I have the right Bible? And if anybody here by any means has any any, um, hardship to actually go out and get a new Bible, we would be honored if you would let us know. And I have about 200 people that would uh, be thrilled to get you one. We'll make sure that happens.